handouts. Uh, one has got this little timeline. The other handout is actually, um, it's just my blog. I wrote three years ago uh, for Reformation Day, October 31st, I wrote a blog, and you're welcome to go to my blog site. Uh, this is without the nice photos, but uh, it's a blog I'm happy with uh, regarding Luther in general and just some positives and some challenges. So I'm curious about some of the, the church-slash-religious backgrounds uh, here. Okay, so what, what kind of churches you grew up in or your, you know, kind of your familiarity with the whole idea of the Reformation. So... Uh, Evan, you grew up in New Life, so you guys were clueless, clueless about church history. Yeah, that's right. Church history started in 1979. <laughs> okay, strong, strong roots. Must have been, was it uh, Wells or Missouri Centered? Wells. I grew up Missouri Centered Lutheran and went to a, a, a parochial school as well, uh, Wells, if you don't know, is the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Church, W-E-L-S, and they are the only Lutheran body more conservative than the one I grew up with. Missouri Centered Lutheran is very, very conservative. They're the, the kind of the um, uh, torchbearers to the original German Lutheran immigrants, but the Wells, the Wisconsin Centered folks, make the Missouri Centered look like United Methodists. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, you were a non-Wells guy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 <laughs> it's funny. And it's kind of sad. And, and kind of as an aside, while we're gathering, um, my old denomination, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, um, and, and there, are, there are some real strong, and, and I'm encouraged by it, I have some family friends who are Lutheran pastors, you know, that I grew up with as a kid. Um, and they've told me that there is some shift and some change. There's even a couple of Missouri Synod Lutheran churches here in the Pikes Peak region that are fairly contemporary and, you know, not quite like, you know, my Lutheran church. But after 9-11, okay, remember there was that big uh, memorial service at Yankee Stadium, remember, where, where, uh, for the city of New York, and everybody showed up for it. I mean, uh, you know, all the public officials... Um, and all the religious leaders of New York were there. Uh, you know, the, the Catholic cardinal and the you know, bishops and all of that. Well, there was a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod congregation right in lower Manhattan near Battery Park that was also terribly impacted by, you know, the attack and lost a lot of their people as well. And so that pastor was also invited to be on the platform and be a part of I was actually in Europe or in Africa on 9-11. I was in Tanzania. I couldn't even get home yet. So I wasn't able to watch that uh, um, memorial service. But uh, my understanding of it was the, the, the religious leaders who prayed up on the platform were mostly ones whose congregations were actually impacted by the attacks. You know, so the, the Catholic cardinal over New York City and, and so forth. After that, a, a couple months after that, some of the hardcore Missouri Synod Lutheran pastors filed heresy charges against that pastor for being on the platform and praying alongside people with whom he didn't have full uh, doctrinal fellowship. I, I got upset. I mean, just even though I'm no longer, I just, it was like, 
you've got to be kidding. I mean, it's like the, the inmates are running the asylum. Fortunately, the president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Center, they're like the presiding bishop, he pulled some kind of a, of a um, administrative, political something or other and was able to table it and dismiss it because he called it an extraordinary event that, that uh, deserved putting aside normal church polity, which is, of course, true. You know, but it's like, really? <laughs> I mean, it's just crazy. Other people, background, Lutheran, yes. Okay, which one? Okay. With, I mean, Christ, there's Christian Reform, Reformed Church of the USA, Reformed Church in America. Okay, yeah. I mean, there, there's, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of different ones, you know. I mean, uh, they, uh, they, they're prolific. I thought the Baptists were the ones who had split the worst over the, our church history. And when, when I was in um, uh, seminary, my American church history professor decided to take Presbyterians as his example to show the splits and the fracture. I was shocked. I didn't know there were so many different brands of Presbyterian, you know? Uh, so everybody is split. And that's one of the unintended, I think, negative consequences of the, of the Reformation. Before the Reformation, there was, wasn't one. There were really two churches. There was the Eastern Church and the Western Church, the Roman Church, because they split in 1054. But after the Reformation... According to some statistics, they say there are over 40,000 different sects and denominations and individualized groups within Christianity. How do you go from one to two to 40,000? And amazing thing is three-fourths of those 40,000 are pretty sure they are the true expression of the church today. You know, I saw a great cartoon in Christianity Today a number of years ago, and the guy's got this, the professor has this, incredibly detailed like um org chart and i mean you could see all these lines and different and it's it's like church history and he says and right here and he certainly goes is our group the ones that god entrusted the true word to <laughs> you know somebody else your background uh from a reformed or lutheran or uh calvinistic or one of those kind of traditions anybody Nah, you guys were Baptists. You guys were the aborigines of, you know, we didn't, you wanted to dunk people and, you know, it was, and you wanted to dunk people who had already been sprinkled, which meant you wanted to baptize them again or in Latin, Anabaptist, which is where the Anabaptist word comes from in the Anabaptist tradition. So I'm teasing you, of course, but uh, those of us from the Reformed tradition know we are because we were exceedingly proud of it. Am I right? It's like we held... And I got to be honest, I love uh, what God did and how God used those, those guys. In fact, I'll, I'll take this as a plug. There is a movie, if you've never seen it, I'm going to pass it around. This movie is wonderful. We watched it last night with some friends. Um, I've watched it, go ahead and just pass it around. Somebody wants it, I want it back at the end. <laughs> um, we had some friends over for dinner last night, and uh, we hadn't seen it for a while. And just, we're having a great time, and I mentioned I'm teaching this Sunday school class and mentioned about the Reformation and all that, and, and they actually went to Europe with us a number of years ago, and were in the, in the city of Worms with us, and I, I've traveled, we've traveled quite a lot through Germany, my wife and I, um, and so the, the lady, uh, the couple, she said, why don't we watch that movie Luther? Do you have it? And I said, I own it. And let's do it. So we actually watched it last night, and 
I, I love Martin. I, I really do. He was not a perfect person, but I, I just really, really appreciate how God used him. So I want to start by, let's, let's start with prayer to begin with. Father in heaven, we want to today learn not just facts and not just history, but Lord, learn and, and be amazed at how you move through the history and the actions of imperfect men and women in imperfect situations, and yet, Lord, you still accomplish your purposes. Lord, I'm reminded of your promise in Isaiah, Lord, that your word will not return void, but will accomplish the purpose in which it was sent. Lord, may we be overwhelmed with that truth today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to, normally I don't read out loud uh, a section, but I'm going to go ahead and read it. You can follow along my, my blog if I had a hammer, because I feel like this will give us a little bit of a, uh, of a grid. It's a, short, uh, it's a short read. If I had a hammer, I wrote this uh, 2013. As I've mentioned in other blogs, I was raised Missouri-centered Lutheran. For those not familiar with the Lutheran landscape in America, we were the true Lutherans, originally from German immigrants who settled out. I'm, I'm talking as a Missouri-centered Lutheran, you understand. Uh, who settled in the Midwest in the 19th century, though my own ethnic pedigree is more of an English-Irish-Dutch hybrid. Our brand of Lutheranism was all-encompassing. Our social, theological, and gastronomical lives were Lutheran. That is, we acted like Lutherans, believed like Lutherans, and in our wonderful church potlucks, we ate like Lutherans. And we, being Lutherans, didn't mind beer, by the way. Um, <laughs> I attended Lutheran parochial school, was baptized, confirmed, and married in the same Lutheran sanctuary. Martin Luther was our namesake and would have been our patron saint, except that as Lutherans, we didn't have patron saints, and we're darn proud of it. Many decades of following Christ have led me from those liturgical roots through the Jesus movement, pastoring in both the Calvary Chapel and Vineyard Churches, a couple of advanced seminary degrees, and now attending and active in a non-denominational church, pastored by a young ordained Anglican priest, can you guess who that is, that has embraced a liturgical form with weekly celebration of the Eucharist. Almost 40 years after being a Jesus freak, I often find myself, along with my wife, serving as Eucharist ministers, holding the chalice and repeating those familiar words, the blood of Christ shed for you, as fellow believers take the cup. Through all my church and theological pendulum swings, one thing has never changed. My image of Martin Luther as a take that Pope Leo in your face sort of guy. Especially when on the morning of October 31st, 1517, he grabbed a hammer and nailed the 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, a small town in eastern Germany where he was pastoring and teaching. A couple years ago, we were able to visit Wittenberg and other Reformation sites in Germany for the first time. One of my bucket list photo ops was being allowed inside the, the Lutherstube, the room in the Wartburg Castle where Martin hid out from the Pope and translated the scriptures into German. A personal note, my wife is half German, and her great-grandfather, Bernard Hartung, was the head guard of the Wartburg Castle around 1900, and we were treated like royalty when we told him this little known fact. We were allowed in the Lutherstube, the Luther room. I mean, not there's ropes. I was in the freaking room next to Martin's desk, and I was in nerd heaven. I, 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 you'll see, the, I think I have one picture of it. I, I have this Cheshire cat grin. You know, I was like, this is so cool. <laughs> I was just, it was, it was really cool. Nail it to the door. My sojourn through the non-denominational, evangelical, charismatic light universe has always had a strong anti-Catholic as well as anti-mainline church fervor. Anytime we found our personal convictions or opinions confronted, we were ready to come alongside Martin and nail our grievances to the Wittenberg door. This door has become iconic. 
even a satirical evangelical magazine used the phrase as their name. Maybe some of you used to read The Door. The Wittenberg Door was like the Babylon Bee is now. Uh, this door, has, excuse me, uh, whenever and wherever Protestants of any persuasion disagree with, well, almost anything, we find ourselves lining up behind Martin and ready to pound those objections into the splintered door of the established church. The sentiment is not without warrant. Pope Leo had acquiesced to an elaborate Ponzi scheme whereby penitent medieval churchgoers were coerced into buying indulgences and thus funding the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Luther's initial list of grievances gave birth to a more developed Protestant theology of the three solas. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide. Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone. But is it fair to piggyback every complaint against any church system to Luther's posting of the 95 Theses on that October morning in Wittenberg? Martin had no intention of dividing the church, but rather reforming and revitalizing it. His heart was clearly for the institution of the church, and he was not nailing a manifesto against organized religion in favor of a make-it-up-as-you-go personal religious experience. But the unintended consequences of that crisp late October morning are still with us today. Do we really want to identify primarily with Martin's desperate act that morning? Consequences of the hammer, violence and bloodshed. We can spin it any way we wish, but an immediate and direct result of Martin's actions was a series of clashes and class warfare battles that killed over 100,000 people. Splintering the church from the church, okay, technically the church already split in 1054, as I said. We now have over 40,000 different branches of Christianity in the world. Elevation of human will and choices. The democratization of the church began. No longer was it an attempt at theocracy with God working through his leadership, but with the priesthood of believers came an onslaught of personal agendas and ecclesiastical matters. Before you think I've crossed the Tiber River and returned to home sweet Rome, I must clearly state that the positive consequences of that October morning are monumental. Every child of God has access to Scripture, and we understand we are saved by grace through faith, and we know that we can go directly to God without the necessity of a mediator. As we acknowledge the role of our forefathers in the faith, including Dr. Martin Luther, had in delivering the saving message of God's grace to us, let us remember that our goal should continue to be that of Jesus' prayer in John 17, that we might be one, and that as a result of that unity, the world might know that God has sent Jesus into the world to save the world. So that's my, um, my little rant, if you will. So I want to talk a little bit about the Reformation. Let me get the pictures out of the way first. This is Linda and I in front of the door. That is the door where Martin nailed the theses. Now, it's not the same door, because that was a wooden door, and it eventually, I don't know, got chipped away by uh, souvenir hunters or <laughs> whatever. But a couple hundred years ago, they put a big iron door, or brass door, excuse me, it's brass, and they carved all of the 95 theses in the door itself. And so it's, it's kind of, or not carved it, I guess they probably, uh, it, it was a mold or something. I, I, frankly, I didn't go chip at it to find out, but... Uh, that's us at the door. That's me in the room. And that my silly grin, you can tell I'm excited. That's Martin over my shoulder. And the, um, you can see the wood paneling, which is original. And see, you can see the stonework there. Any of you know the story, what happened when Martin was translating the scriptures? First time the people were going to have the Bible in their language. And Martin talks in his diaries about the incredible spiritual warfare and the awareness and sense he had of demonic presences in that room fighting him. Did any of you know what happened at one point? Kind of a culmination. You heard the story. 
The demon was so relenting, according to Martin's own, this, now, I grew up Lutheran. We never, never thought about demons this way. In our, but Martin was, have, was yelling at this demon who was trying to get him to stop doing this work. And in anger, he commanded the demon to leave his room in Jesus' name. And he took his inkwell and he threw it at the demon and it splattered on the wall behind him. For centuries, pilgrims would come and chip away little pieces of that ink blot on the wall until all that remains now is the stone behind it. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> it, you know, is, is that true? Is it urban legend? I, Martin really did throw the inkwell and people really did. We've seen it. It's, I mean, you know, and no, Linda and I didn't scrape any and take it home. Okay, and then finally, this is me in Martin Luther's pulpit. Is, is that cool? The guy, there was, it, there was nobody there. A, a, a friend of ours from Berlin took us there that day. It was a, during the week. I think it was like a Tuesday. There was nobody there. We walked into the church, and there was, there was a little, uh, very small little kind of like uh, bookstore in the back. And the guy who ran the bookstore had stepped out. And I don't have a smoke. I mean, I don't know why he stepped out. But suddenly, we were the only ones in the whole church. And so I handed my camera to Linda. I said, quick, give me a, get a picture of me. And I went behind Martin Luther's pulpit, um, hoping that something would just, like, fall on me. But it didn't, apparently. Okay, so in Geneva, Switzerland, there is this huge wall. It's called the Reformation Wall. Why would it be in Geneva, Switzerland? Calvin, yeah. Next week, we'll talk about the Swiss and English reformers. Luther was the first guy in a lot of ways, but shortly after him, it caught on in Switzerland, in Geneva, and then in Zurich. In Geneva, there's this, in this wall, that's just a portion of it. The wall is probably about, I have not been there. I've just seen pictures of it. But it, it's, look at the width of those four statues. The wall is probably about 10 times that length. There's other statues and reliefs. And in the middle of the wall, it has, it has statues, of course, of Martin Luther and John Huss and John Knox and Calvin and, you know, Ulrich Zwingli and uh, Thomas Cramner and all the famous uh, reformers. But there is a Latin phrase in, on that wall, post tenebris lux, which simply means out of darkness, light. The darkness of the dark ages going into the middle ages and the darkness particularly with regard to two areas. One is, in its, there's, there's two pronunciations, either sacerdotalism or sacerdotalism and, and I don't know that it really matters. I, I think that's more of a regional uh, thing on how you would uh, pronounce it. But I, I learned up sacerdotalism and I've heard others say sacerdotalism. What that simply means, you can see the word sacrament kind of in there. That was the teaching or the implication that salvation came through the church authority and the church's administration of the sacraments. And when we think of sacraments, from a Protestant perspective, we think of what two? Baptism and communion. Yeah. Two that we participate in here regularly. Okay. Because a sacrament, uh, the, the easiest definition is a sacrament is, is a physical act com- uh, done by Jesus, commanded by Jesus for us to do. And in that physical act, we find 
the means of grace. We find actual encounter with God through the physical act, not the act itself. The, in the scripture, it even says baptism, uh, you know, baptism saves you, not the applying of water to the body, but the response of your conscience, that it's, it's a physical act that is connected to and illustrates the spiritual truth, okay? But the Catholic Church added a few by then. They had seven sacraments. And these were really a bit of a, um, a power issue because, for example, communion or the Eucharist, and you all know why sometimes we call it the Eucharist or why some churches call it the Eucharist. Somebody tell me. It's, actually, it's pretty simple. Eucharisto is in the Greek the word for give thanks. And when that portion of Scripture that first describes Jesus at the first Last Supper, you know, his Last Supper, it says, after giving thanks, he broke the bread. If you read it in the Greek, it says Eucharisto. And so it just became known as the Eucharisto, the Thanksgiving meal, essentially. And so some people panic when they hear us call it the Eucharist, thinking that's some kind of a Catholic term for it. That's just, the his, historically, was using the original Greek language to describe what it was, a, a meal of thanksgiving for what God has done. Okay? But in, by the time of the Middle Ages, they put fees and taxes on people. You couldn't take the Eucharist unless you paid your tax or your fee. So here you've got poor people coming to church and they can't even participate in what they are being told is the way that they will come to eternal life unless they cough up some money. Now that is clearly not how God intended the church to be. That's the darkness the tenebrae, okay? So the sacerdotalism or sacerdotalism where to, you had to pay a fee to be baptized or for your child to be baptized. Think about the pressure. Now baptism is more than just that sign of and a seal of the covenant. It is actually salvific itself. It's how that kid's going to be saved. If the kid dies and isn't baptized, the kid is going to burn forever in hell and I don't have the money so I've got to figure some way to get the money to pay the priest so the priest will baptize my kid so my kid will go to heaven like I said kind of an elaborate Ponzi scheme you know by that time and and it was it was bad in places it was really bad so you had that and then the second aspect of darkness was the scripture and it wasn't just that people didn't have access to the scripture. It was the f people couldn't read either. You had illiteracy um, in, in, in a great majority of, of the Western world by that point. And the Western world was, at that point, kind of the, the, uh, the keeper of the keys of Christendom. And so out of that darkness came light. Now, it wasn't Martin first. These are just some bullet points. How many of you know there's a guy from Prague several hundred years before Martin? What was his name? Big statue of him. What? Huss. John Huss. Now, what you need to know about John Huss, a couple of things. Obviously, he was, he was bold to stand up against the Roman. And when, I'm going to use the word Roman rather than the word Catholic because Catholic, of course, just means universal. But the Roman expression of the church had become very, very corrupt. And Huss standing up against the, the powers, the Roman uh, powers, was eventually put to death. His name is pronounced in the Czech language, Hus. And Hus literally means goose. 
That was his last name, was John Goose, okay? Hey, you know, we all have, I mean, I was called Toad. You know, I mean, everybody has their, their cross they bear, depending on their name, I suppose. So I just wanted you to follow the train of thought. This is so remarkable. I don't know, because I've been in the charismatic wing of the church for years, I lean to think that God supernaturally ordained and maneuvered this. Um, I've heard others lecture on it uh, who are a little more thinking it's just coincidental. I'll let you make that decision. But John Huss was burned at the stake in downtown Prague in the late 12 or 1300s. The bishop, the archbishop of the Catholic Church who ordered his execution and witnessed it, when Huss, when they were lighting the kindling to begin the execution process, Hus, Goose, declared to that bishop, you can cook this goose, but God is going to raise up a swan to bring forth his truth. Now, 300 years later, in 1483, there was a young man born to the family of Luther, Martin Luther. Do you know what the Luther family crest is? A swan. Now I'm going to jump forward. Luther entered the monastery in 1504 in Erfurt, uh, which is in eastern Germany. We've we've been there as well. It's uh, a pretty city. Luther entered the monastery there, and two years later was ordained. When Martin Luther was ordained into ministry, which would which would set the trajectory for him to be able to be in a position to that God could use for the Reformation. Martin, who comes from the family of swans, Martin was prostrate, as, as priests still do, uh, for their ordination. He was prostrate on the ground of, at the high altar. You've seen pictures of how the priest would be. And they ordained him. In that church in Erfurt, the cathedral there, under the ground of the high altar, the archbishop of Prague is buried, the same one to whom Huss said, you can cook this goose but God's going to raise up a swan. And as R.C. Sproul puts it, when he lectures on this, he said, I, he said, I have no proof of this, but I like to think that that archbishop in defiance said to us before he died over my dead body, and God said, yes, over your dead body. <laughs> you know, I, that's too good not to be divine, isn't it? <laughs> that's this. And who said church history has to be boring? I mean, you know, the goose is cooked, but God raised up the swan. So what do you know about Martin? Martin's father, anybody know about him? He was a hard man. He was a miner. had become very successful. He owned at least six mines. A very wealthy uh, German nobleman. But he wasn't highly educated. He was just very industrious. He wanted his son to become, anybody know? A lawyer. So he paid for Martin to go to law school. He wanted a lawyer in the family. But Martin... Martin finished his law degree, but Martin was troubled. Martin was a sensitive guy. And you've all heard about the lightning bolt. It's a true story. Martin is running through this this path, and a lightning bolt, lightning is crashing all around him, and a lightning bolt hits very close to him. He is huddled down. He is crying out to God, and he's also crying out to St. Anne because St. Anne was the patron saint of minors. And so he would have seen little statues of St. Anne in his home, no doubt. And he's praying out to St. Anne saying, you know, deliver me from this and I will serve God. I mean, how many people have, you know, those kind of prayers, you know, just get me out of this and I'll serve you, you know. But Martin kept 
his end of the promise because he didn't die in the, in the uh, uh, lightning storm. And so he went to uh, this monastery, an Augustinian monastery in Erfurt, and he presented himself, and he studied, and he was ordained. And it seems like about every five years, Martin had a major event in his life. So uh, in, in 1510, Martin is troubled. Martin is not experiencing um, what he thought he would in ministry. Now, what we also know is that Martin, at, to that point, had never read the Bible. I, I mean, it, it astounds me. How could you be ordained as a priest and never have action? Because they had no copy of the Bible in Erfurt at that time. But the, uh, the, the friar, uh, the abbot, I should say, at the monastery, that would be the priest who was in charge, felt like it would do Martin some good to get out of town and to connect to the church in a better way. So they had some errands. They, had some, they needed somebody to deliver some stuff to Rome and to the Vatican, or what was the Vatican at that point. It was much more scaled down, of course. And so they chose Martin to go. So Martin went to Rome. And Martin, when he went to Rome, he was devastated because he saw, as he put it, a wicked carnival. He said he saw brothels just for for clergy. He saw people, um, hucksters, selling everything under the sun. There there were... um, the stairs, you've seen like the Spanish steps, you know, where you, you pay an amount and then you say uh, the Lord's Prayer on uh, kneeling on every step and at the top, your relative is delivered out of purgatory. And he just, he saw this and it just grieved him so much. So when Martin came back, uh, he was really, really confused. And, and so his abbot, his, his spiritual father felt like what he needed to do was really get into the scriptures and know Christ. And so it's actually, it's actually through that relationship with that abbot that we, in a Protestant evangelical perspective, would say that Martin really came fully to faith. Because uh, his, his abbot told him uh, you know, to, to cry out to God and lean on Christ. And then they gave him an opportunity to pursue a doctorate in theology in Wittenberg, Germany, which was not too far, even by, um, even by walking. Uh, Wittenberg is, is, is not too far from um, Erfurt. And there was an op- opening there, an opportunity, and so he went and he studied and he eventually became the priest of that church in Wittenberg. It was a large church. He became the professor over all of the theology students that were studying for the priesthood in that church. And Luther was a great communicator. Everybody loved his lectures. He was funny. Uh, he was a bit satirical. And we know all this because Martin Luther's writings are volumul- uh, voluminous. I mean, they're just, Luther wrote down everything. And he had other scribes writing down everything. So we have volumes and volumes and volumes of Martin Luther's lectures and talks. There's even, I think, a 12, I think it's 12-volume series called Table Talk. Because later in the Reformation, um, Martin's wife, Katharina van Bora, uh, uh, later after he got married, uh, Katie, as he called her, Katie would brew her own beer and make her own homemade bread, and Martin's theology students would come over several times a week and sit around this big table at their house in Wittenberg eating Katie's bread and drinking Katie's beer and talking about theology. And I think that would be just the coolest night in the world, don't you? <laughs> Dr. Luther, I got another question. Oh, sure, fill me up again. You know? <laughs> so, um, Martin is starting to have fun. But all of these other things are going on. 
There, there's kind of like this behind the scenes, and God knows this is going on. Um, there's a new pope. His name is Leo. Julius the warrior fails miserably and is not able to really bring the glory back to Rome. So Leo comes in, and Leo is smart. Leo's a bit of a businessman. And so Leo develops this system. They had had indulgences for years. An indulgence had to do with what's called the treasury of merit. The treasury of merit is in Rome. It's not a place, it's a concept. And it still exists. I have a, I have a Catholic encyclopedia in my library at home, and I, I looked it up recently, and it still exists. In, in Roman Catholic teaching, um, you're saved by grace, but God wants you to do good works. And all of the good works of like all of the saints, like Mary, the Blessed Mother, uh, Joseph, uh, Jesus' stepfather, all the apostles, all the saints throughout history, they, when they c- go into heaven upon death, all of the merit of their good works are like extra. And all that merit is stored in the treasury of merit in Rome. I'm not making this stuff up, okay? And therefore, on extenuating circumstances, the Pope can, can open a door for an indulgence, so you can, with a donation, you can appeal and take some of the merit that's left over in the treasury and apply it to a dead relative who's suffering in purgatory. Okay? So, Leo said, let's bring back the indulgences, and he ordained or authorized or or empowered a priest from a Dominican um, uh, order called John Tetzel, and Tetzel was Tetzel was uh, P.T. Barnum, okay? Tetzel put together this traveling company that would do these elaborate plays in the city square showing the torment of flames and of hell, and he would follow it that evening with a, a meeting in the biggest church building, and everybody would come. In fact, it's translated very correctly from German into English. They rhymed in both of them. When the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory flees. Now, they couldn't come to Wittenberg because there was some political conflict, and in, in the region of Saxony, they weren't allowed to come. But there was another area, a, a town called Uterbog, which is just about eight miles away from Wittenberg, that was in another um, state, and they could come there. So Martin, oh, I, I should go back also. Meanwhile, Mainz, which is just uh, west of Frankfurt, the Archbishop of Mainz was the Archbishop for the whole region. Well, the guy who wanted to become the new Archbishop, Albert, was already a bishop. And according to their law, you couldn't be a bishop in two different places. But he'd become a bishop at the age of 13 when his dad paid for the bishop's seat to the Pope. Okay? But he wanted to be a, a bishop in his own right now that he was an adult and could buy the title himself, you know? And they charged him 10,000 ducats, which was the um, uh, currency at that time in that part of Germany. That's what the Pope wanted, 10,000 ducats. Well, he didn't have 10,000 ducats, but he really wanted to be archbishop because we know, of course, that's how you rise up in church leadership is, you know, pay somebody off, right? And so there was a family in um, what we would now call the Netherlands um, that were bankers, and they loaned him the 10,000 ducats so he could give it to the pope and become the archbishop. And the deal was that he had, uh, he had to pay back with interest, and so he then worked out a deal with Johann Tetzel to let Johann Tetzel into some of his regions if Tetzel would split the money 50-50 with him. 
50% would go to the Pope to build St. Peter's Basilica, and 50% would pay back the uh, bankers in the Netherlands for him getting to be the Archbishop of Mines. So this is a, that's why I use the word Ponzi scheme. I mean, this is all going on. Martin doesn't know this. Martin is teaching his theology students in Wittenberg. He's pastoring this, this growing large church, and he's kind of hitting a little bit of a sweet spot. But Martin's got people in his church that have challenges and, and difficulties. And, I mean, life was difficult in 1517, anywhere in the world, including Wittenberg, Germany. And so a lot of his m- congregants and members of his church heard about this big show and all this stuff going on in nearby Uterbog. So they, you know, got in the carts and horses or whatever, and they all went to Uterbog for the show. And they were so excited because at the end of the show, you got to give money and get a piece of paper that got your grandma or your aunt or your child that had died or your whoever out of purgatory. And they, some of them came back and showed Father Martin their, uh, their certificate of indulgence. And, and, and it's accurately portrayed in the movie, if you've seen it. Martin takes it and crumbles it, pays back the young lady who spent the money and said, don't waste your money. This is nothing but paper. And Martin goes to his study and begins to write his doctrinal and logical reasons why indulgences were not biblical. Now, he didn't write it for everybody. Do you know what language he used to write it in? Latin. Because what he was doing with the 95 Theses, he wanted the scholars from the University of Wittenberg and scholars from the church to come together and discuss this and argue and and, and work through this. He was never trying to incite a riot. And it wasn't vandalism that caused him to go up and nail it to the door. What was the church door in those days? Bulletin board, exactly right. That's where you put... The, the, the coming show or, the, you know, or, or whatever. So it was not inappropriate for Martin to nail it to the wall. So he nails it to the wall. And some of his young theology students who read Latin immediately started reading it and they said, this is amazing. We got to get this out. Well, there was this guy nearby in Mainz named Johann Gutenberg who had just invented this machine and he was looking for stuff to print. You know, I mean, the only thing worse than, I mean, it's amazing to invent the printing press, but the bummer then is to not have any stuff to print, you know? And so, and because you've got a couple centuries of illiteracy, you know, and you don't have a lot of stuff being written. And so suddenly they go, I got an idea. They took it down. Uh, We don't know when. It might have been one or two days after he nailed it. It was off the wall. They're over there. Gutenberg is setting up the, the, the typeface because they translated it into German. It is said that in two years' time, every village in Germany had read the theses in their native language. It, I mean, think about everything had to be walked or by horse and carriage, and yet in two years' time, those printed copies made it all over the entire country. It also made mention, or it was made mention to Rome and to the powers that be and to Pope Leo. Pope Leo was not as worried as the cardinals were. Pope Leo simply said, he's a, he's a silly little drunk German monk. He'll be okay in the morning. Well, he wasn't okay in the morning. And so all of these things transpired, and Martin began to really take aim at 
indulgences and relics. What's a relic? Sam, you know what a relic is? Yep. The Yes. Yeah, and you got uh, a splinter from the real cross. Uh, Martin made fun of this in one of his lectures. I mean, he's joking, and he said, I've seen one church that had breast milk from the Holy Mother. You know, he said, I've seen it. I mean, it just gets ridiculous. Linda and I were, honey, remember, it was Siena, Italy. Remember we went into that one church, and they had the head of that, of that saint, the church was named after, up high above the altar is this little box. Is her freaking head. <laughs> I mean, it's like, is that, oh my gosh, you know, and it was named after her, because I guess that being there gave it, that's a relic, you know, well, Martin took off after that stuff, and so they, there were several things that happened, but initially, there was a, an appeal process, Martin was supposed to go and play nice, went down to Osberg, and he's supposed to tell the cardinal one word, revoco, which means I recant, and Martin's spiritual father went with him, the abbot from the uh, uh, monastery, to be support. And he really was a kind, he was really Martin's father because Martin's uh, natural father really never reconciled much with his son. And so uh, Martin's spiritual father's there, and I can just see the picture. Can't you? Martin, let's just, let's just play the system and make this go away. You can go back to Wittenberg. You can continue to teach. You continue to preach. Just revoco. You got it? Just revoco. And he can't help himself. The cardinal is there, and Martin's saying, surely you don't want to be disobedient to God and his holy word, your eminence. What? <laughs> you know, surely you, don't, you know that the scripture, I mean, he's just, Martin just can't help it. You know, <laughs> in the movie, they show Martin's father at one point before the Diet of Worms saying, Martin, can you just shut your stupid mouth up? <laughs> you know, and the answer was no, Martin could not. So it goes on, it picks up, now, I grew up, you, you went to uh, Lutheran uh, parochial school. I'm sure you remember, like me, we used to make jokes about the diet of worms. Um, you know, when you're a kid, oh, hey, you had a diet of worms. Well, diet is the word for a, a convocation, like a, 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 um, a tribunal, okay? And worms is not pronounced worms, it's pronounced worms, and it's a city near Heidelberg, in uh, Germany, okay? And the Diet of Worms was the tribunal in this, this um, uh, cathedral where they were going to call Martin to account. for all. They had all of his pamphlets and all of his books. Martin wrote a lot. And they asked Martin to recant. And do you remember Martin's famous words? Here I stand, I can do none other. And all hell breaks loose, Okay? And the Pope then publishes a bull of excommunication. Now, bull simply means like a, a, a writ or an order of excommunication. But do you know what Martin does with the bull of excommunication? He burns it and he, in the name of Jesus, excommunicates the Pope. <laughs> so the line has been drawn. Now, Martin's friends and his disciples, they are concerned because there is, a, there is now a contract out on Martin's head. The Pope essentially says, hey, whatever happens to him, happens to him, which was like, wink, wink. If somebody wants to kill him, that's fine with me. So all through this, Martin's University was funded by Prince Frederick the Protector. 
Germany was a loose federation. They had an emperor, Emperor Charles V, who was considered the Holy Roman Emperor down in Augsburg. And his relatives, his uncles and others, were the, were the princes. I think there were 12 of them. And they were the prince protector over certain regions. Philip, um, uh, uh, Frederick, I'm sorry, Frederick the protector was the one who was essentially paying Martin's salary at the university. And he liked Martin. And he intervened on a number of cases. And so one of the things that Frederick did is he told some of his staff, some of his soldiers, I want you to make sure Martin, Dr. Luther is safe. Kidnap him, but make it look like a robbery or a mugging or a, I mean, make it look nefarious. So when Martin was leaving Worms, he is kidnapped and, and everybody thinks he is killed. Well, he was taken to a little town of Eisenach. Eisenach is where, where Linda's grandfather was born and her great-grandfather lived. Eisenach is where uh, Johann Sebastian Bach was born. And Eisenach is actually where Martin lived as a child for a few years. And there's this old castle, the Wartburg Castle, up on the hill there. It's the one I mentioned at the beginning. And Martin was there for 10 months. And during that 10 months, Martin translated the scriptures into the common German of the day, which was a phenomenal, phenomenal thing. But outside... The same group that had been all um, riled up with the, the 95 Theses started getting angry at the, at the response of Rome and the Pope, and it started a civil war. It's called the Peasant War. And some say as many as 200,000, others say 100,000 people died in those 10 months. It was horrific. It was just terrible. Luther became, um, he, he found out about it. He, he wasn't even aware at one point. He found out about the death and the bloodshed, even in Wittenberg. And at that point, Luther said, I can no longer hide. I have to go back to my people. And Luther left. He, he came back in and, and essentially took charge. And it, it calmed and it quelled, and the people listened to Martin. During that time, um, the, the church began to realize that... <laughs> they could probably no longer remain part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church because Rome would have none of them. And so they began to meet, and there was this, there was this one meeting called the um, Marburg Colloquy. It's in, um, uh, I mentioned it in the timeline here. It's kind of a funny one. I put not playing well together. Uh, by that time, there were some guys in, in Switzerland like Ulrich Zwingli, uh, Calvin hadn't come along yet. Calvin was, Calvin lived at one point the same time that Luther lived, but he was quite a bit younger than Luther. He was probably about 30 years younger than Luther. So he, Calvin was on the scene in the latter years of Luther's life, but Zwingli was there. And all of these reformer guys met in this castle in Marburg in southern Germany to kind of hammer out a statement of faith. Well, Martin could be a little stubborn, okay? And... A big thing, and you know, if you, if uh, those of us who are raised Lutheran, real presence of Christ in the Eucharist is a big deal. Okay, in with and under the bread and wine, as we used to say. And do you know where the word hocus pocus comes from? True story. In the Latin Mass, when he says, "This is my body," that's hocus corpus deum in Latin. And what in the Catholic Church happened after he broke, the priest breaks the bread, they ring the bells because it becomes the body, the blood of, or the body of Christ. So the, in the, throughout 
the, the dark and middle ages, people not really understanding it knew that something magical happened when the priest said something and they didn't have microphones. So in the back of the sanctuary and echoing, they hear something like hocus pocus, ring, the magic happens. Serious, that's how, that's how it comes about. So Martin is there at this table with all these guys, and they agree on the Trinity, and they agree on, you know, I mean, they're, they're agreeing on everything. But Zwingli really doesn't like the Catholics. And he is just wanting to push as far back on every issue. Zwingli also didn't want any kind of ornamentation or artwork or sculptures in any of his churches. Zwingli didn't want music because he said it would incite emotions and emotions would lead them to Catholic idolatry. So Zwingli didn't, he was, Zwingli was not the guy to invite to a party. You know, I mean, he was really. So Zwingli is saying communion is nothing more than a memorial meal. That's it. And Martin, it's like, oh, that was Martin's button. And so hoc est corpus deum. This is my body. That's what Martin said. The, Jesus said, this is my body. And as Zwingli is talking and trying to explain himself, Martin is at the other end of the table. There, there's, there's actual pictures of, of this, and he's going, hoc est corpus deum. And Zwingli keeps talking, hoc est corpus deum. Zwingli's still trying to talk, hoc est, and he is just pounding the table, hoc est corpus deum. And they suspended the meeting, and everybody went their own way. So <laughs> it didn't really work out that well. But a few years after that, they did get together, and they developed what was known as the Osberg Confession. It was the first statement of faith of the churches in Germany, and they went to present it to the Emperor Charles V and to explain to him that they wanted to no longer be under Rome. Well, Charles was, was conflicted because he's a politician, and he got a lot of money from Rome, and he got a lot of, of, of power from Rome because he was kind of a, a vassal for the Pope. But they also appealed to his own personal German nationalism and said, why should we as Germans be submitted to these Italian guys? You know, and they're like, hey, you're right. You know? And so, uh, and there's, there's an amazing scene. Uh, if you see the movie, and I've passed that, I do want the DVD back, but uh, that DVD. Um, there's a scene of them before Charles V, okay? Well, in kind of parenthetical now, Luther's lieutenant through all of this the theologian of the Reformation was a man named Philip Melanchthon. He was not really a speaker. He was very quiet, but he, was, uh, he, he wrote. He was brilliant. He was better at Greek and Hebrew than Martin. And so when Martin revised and later kind of uh, made better editions of his German Bible, it was really Melanchthon who did most of that because Melanchthon was just genius. Melanchthon was born in Breton, Germany, where um, my wife's uh, cousins live. And we'd been there, and we got a private tour of the Melanchthon House Museum because uh, we got a, it was a, a private city tour because her cousin's friend was the vice mayor of Breton. It was, again, I was in nerd heaven. This was so cool. And when Linda and I were, we were there, there's these beautiful, in the chapel there, beautiful, very old frescoes of Melanchthon's life. Well, Melanchthon was the one that Luther didn't go to Charles because he, they were afraid he'd be captured and put to death. So Melanchthon brought the Osberg Confession and presented it to the emperor. So there's this painting of Melanchthon um, this old fresco of Melanchthon and all the, the princes of Germany kneeling down, ready to be beheaded if necessary, rather than submit to Rome. And Linda and I looked at that fresco on the wall, and, and Linda said, that looks just like the movie Luther. And the lady, the vice mayor who was giving us tour, she goes, oh yes, some years ago, that, that America movie, Luther, those, 
Hollywood movie men, they come right here because they want to know about it, and I showed them that picture. <laughs> so they designed the set after the fresco in that place, which was, again, so cool. Some people want to, I don't know, some people want to go to the Caribbean and surf or something. I want to go to Luther's places and look at old books, you know, to each his own, right? Um, so they presented it, and it was accepted, the Osberg Confession. So what at the heart of Lutheran theology, we have what we call the sola. Solo, you know, you know the word solo by yourself. Sola is Latin. Latin for grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone. Salvation is by God's grace alone. And it is through faith alone. That's just another way of saying Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? We are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then scripture alone, because in the Roman tradition, it was scripture and church tradition. They are an equal level. How many, I didn't ask this question now that we've I had blasted the Roman church. How many here grew up Catholic? Oh my goodness. Oh, Deb, that's why you're shaking your head, yes. Okay. <laughs> Lord be with you. Um, the, the, the tradition and the church fathers are an equal stance to scripture. And so the, the Reformation said, nope, it's grace, it's faith, and it's the Bible. And with the Sola Scriptura was the belief that every person could and should have access to the Scriptures, which was scandalous to the Roman church because they were afraid people who were simple and not very smart would, would read all kinds of things into it. And sadly, that's true. I mean... Wasn't the end of the world supposed to happen last week again? Some, I, I read that somewhere. You know, I mean, stuff does happen, you know, like that. Okay. Oh, I, th- 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 this is the famous, this is the etching from uh, Albrecht Dürer, who did a lot of uh, uh, wood etchings. This is his etching of Martin, uh, Martin pounding the uh, table when Zwingli's trying to make his point. Uh, hocus corpus deum. Okay. So, what are some of the positives of Luther and the German Reformation, well, the first one is the scripture was restored to all people. We could all read God's revelation to humankind ourselves. Okay, that that was just incredible. Um, Beyond that, the justification by faith alone, which was and still is the hallmark of Protestant theology, that that we are saved by faith, not by works. So it's, it's not the church, it's not the church leadership, It's not the church systems. It is simply faith in God. And then this radical concept of the priesthood of all believers. What is that? Somebody describe. What do you mean priesthood of all believers? We all get to wear the robes? That's exactly right. We all have access to God. Um, We don't have to go through a human mediator um, like the priest. And it doesn't take away the pastoral gifts and offices. In fact, Luther was a big believer in those. But it does say that everybody gets to go to God. And so the priesthood of all believers is is a hallmark of of faith, which is why um, to this day, um, most Reformed churches, uh, even, even the high churches like the Lutheran churches where they might have bishops, those roles are purely um, administrative. You know what I mean? They're not... Um, they aren't the final boss and authority. It's always a, um, 
a group, whether it's elders or in every Reformed church, there's always that sense that all of us can hear from God. And we're going to work collaboratively uh, to do that. One of the dangers, I think, in some ways of... How many of you grew up kind of the non-denominational thing? I know, Evan, you did. You know, those of us who grew up in, in a strong denominational background, we know the pitfalls of it, okay? You get into where policy becomes more important than people, and, you know, and I, I get all that. But, you know, one of the challenges of the kind of the non-denominational, make-it-up-as-you-go American church culture is a lack of any accountability in spirit, uh, to spiritual authority. You know, you get these wacky guys who teach wacky stuff, and there's nobody over them that can say, hey, <laughs> tone it down, bud. You know, I mean, really, there, there's, there is some safety to know that there's a, a, an elder or a presbyter or a bishop or a district superintendent or somebody that can say, hey, uh, I was listening to that sermon. Uh, we need to sit down and talk because that's really not biblical. You know, I mean, just kind of some thoughts. So, that leads to what are some of the challenges. I talked about this in that, um, my blog, but we look at it. The violence was, was, a, 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 was a real consequence initially of the Reformation. And, probably, and you can't blame it on the Reformation and on Luther, but what you can say is there was such a powder keg of social, political, cultural, socioeconomic um, Factors all at once. I'm reminded of that First Chronicles passage where it says, talking about the mighty men of David's army, and it says 200 from the sons of Issachar, and it says they were leaders, chiefs, because it said, understanding the times, they knew what Israel should do. That there is a real necessity for, for a mature, discerning cultural awareness when you are in great positions of influence over people because there are so many things that can go south so quickly. And in the case, when they, you know, they thought it would be good to get Luther out of the picture to save his life, but his absence fomented and caused this violence to erupt in such a, a horrific way. It was not unlike the kind of violence that happened right in the aftermath of the French Revolution where you had these kangaroo courts and you had uh, just people being killed for no good reason, you know. And so... Uh, what's, the, what's the takeaway from that one? Well, perhaps the takeaway is just we should always be like the sons of Issachar. On one hand, un, our, our head is in the scriptures and our, and our heart is praying and asking God for wisdom, but also we're understanding the times in which we live so that we know what the action steps should be. So there's a discernment so that we don't end up um, unintentionally lighting a, uh, a fuse. You know, now we won't, we won't have the kind of of um, violence perfectly that they did. But I look at even in America right now, I, you know, this last election, the, the, the unbridled, unfortunate comments made by many men and women of faith really have not been helpful. We, do we all agree? I mean, it's, it's, it's like we need to have some discernment. We need to have a little bit of uh, <laughs> cultural discernment as well. Splintering the church, that's the, the point I was mentioning before, that we really need to try what we can do to have unity. As hard as it is, we need to, because we always divide over stupid stuff. Now, I'm not saying the initial one was stupid stuff, because it wasn't. Um, 
there had to be a reformation of the church. But now, like I said in that blog, we, we, you know, we nail our little petty things to the same door, you know. And, and um, you know, I, many of you know, you know some of our story, and I, I work in Africa and, and over there frequently. I've heard stories. I know a true story in, in a Central African country where there was a split in a church, a large growing church, and the split came over... The pastor said the men in the church had to wear white shirts to church. And an associate pastor at this African church said that men could wear colorful shirts. And so they split into two different church groups over color of shirt. You know, I mean, so the make it up as you go spirituality of America. I'm reading a book right now, by the way. Um, the, The guy's name is Hatch. And it's a book written in the late 80s, but it's called The Democratization of the American Church. Um, There's a scholar by the name of Dr. Don Williams, who, uh, when I was a vineyard pastor, he was one of our scholars. He's been a vineyard pastor much of his life, but he was uh, trained as Presbyterian. He's got, I think, two PhDs, one from Fuller Seminary. He's a brilliant guy. He's written several uh, commentaries. And I read an interview with him recently, and he said, they said, what do you think Christian leaders should be reading? And he said, well, I think they should all go back and read this book by Hatch, The, the uh, Democratization of the American Church. In the book, and I haven't finished it, but in the book, what Hatch says is that in America, our revolutionary spirit that caused us to rebel against King George and in the American Revolution and, and start our country and the rugged individualism of our pioneer movement that allowed us to spread across the plains and unfortunately kill a lot of indigenous people, but, you know, and, and move all the way to the other coast and establish cities and establish um, economy and establish all of that. And much of that has been very good, but that individualistic sort of um, revolutionary independent drive found its way in the way that the American Protestant church has become where we don't want anybody telling us what to do, you know? And, and some, of the, some of that democratization that hasn't necessarily... Democracy, what was it Winston Churchill said? That a democracy is the worst possible form of government except for all the others, you know? <laughs> it's the best bad way to lead a country, okay? But that doesn't mean it's the best way to lead the church, you know? Does that make sense? You know, I mean, it's, it's, it is the default best way for our country to run itself. But maybe we've almost taken it a little too far. And then the elevation of the human will and the democratization of the church. Okay, so this is the Lutheran seal. Faith alone, grace alone, word alone. Um, my father has this on his tombstone. because My dad was a gracious, loving man who loved Jesus and was a Lutheran. And so... This is on his tombstone, um, but it's not a bad thing to be on the tombstone. So questions and, and conversation. This, there are volumes of books written about what we just talked about in an hour. Okay, There are entire graduate seminary classes in that. So I, I know I didn't even begin to cover it, but I wanted to give a, a, a kind of a high elevation look. So any comments or questions? Yes, in the back. Mm-hmm. Oh, well. <laughs> I understand. I'm more comfortable with the Anglican 
uh, probably, and even some of the Methodist type approach. I believe in real presence, but I don't. Real presence means there's basically three views. There's transubstantiation. That's what the Catholics believe, that it literally becomes the body. It changes in character and nature. Okay? Transubstantiation. Luther taught what some people call consubstantiation. Some Lutheran scholars debate that and say that's not a good definition. Um, Others use the term real presence, that the real presence of Christ is there in the meal. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, the bread which we break is it not a koinonia with the body of Christ? Um, an actual participation with the body of Christ. The bread, the, the cup which we bless, is it not a koinonia with the blood of Christ? You know I mean, so we believe that there is really an encounter with the presence of the Lord in that. Then there's, but it's a mystery, okay? And there's, there's some of us in the real presence that are more, the real presence, but it's not, it's not magical, Okay? And then there's some that maybe lean over a little more towards uh, almost magical. And then there's the third one, which would be more the, the mainline evangelical Baptist um, uh, charismatic often uh, one, which is called memorialism. And that's where it is a memorial meal, but it is not anything more than that. Okay? Um, so you got memorial meal, real presence, and there's some fuzziness in there, and transubstantiation. Catholics are transubstantiation. I guess because of my Lutheran heritage and because of my, my seminary studies, I was always a little uncomfortable with the solid memorial-only side. I found in my tradition later, and, and, and I'm, I'm not putting anybody down. I'm just, we're just talking church history. When I, was a Cal- when I was in a Calvary Chapel church, and I was an associate pastor, and I was a worship leader, we would have communion once a month on a Wednesday night. It always seemed like it was almost an afterthought, and we had to quickly get it done. It was like, you know, I'd, I'd do extra songs, and they'd pass them out. And sometimes the language that the pastor would use was almost taking great effort to explain away any sense of mystery in it. Now, this is nothing. You know, there's nothing to this, and you don't have to do it. And it's, it's like, well, then why are we doing it, you know? <laughs> I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious, but that always kind of bothered me. And so when I became a pastor in the Vineyard Movement, um, I started getting, I wanted to celebrate communion more because I felt there needed to be a reverence and, and a real holy anticipation of, a, of an encounter with the Lord that I knew I had experienced in my life, um, but I wasn't quite sure how to do it. Well, there was a guy who wrote a book back in the late 80s, or the mid-80s, um, uh, Dr. Robert Weber, with two Bs, W-E-B-B-E-R, called Evangelicals on the Canterbury Trail. And he was a professor at Wheaton College and uh, became very well-known uh, because he actually uh, went back to kind of a high church uh, tradition himself. He passed away from cancer probably about 10 years ago, and uh, they've actually named uh, their... Um, uh, doctoral program for worship uh, ministries after Dr. Weber. Um, but for you younger people, we used to do this thing called letter writing. Uh, you would take a piece of paper and, a, and like a pen, and you would actually like write, and then you would fold it and put it in an envelope, and you would get this sticky thing and put it on there and, and put it in a box, and, and weeks would go by, and you would hope that somebody had read it and maybe would do the same thing and send it back to you. Remember, remember those? Yeah. And so <laughs> I wrote a letter to Dr. Weber. And I said, Dr. Weber, I'm pastoring this church. Our, our heritage is very short, the Jesus movement. 
But I feel this sense of wanting to incorporate the Eucharist regularly, but I, want to, I don't want everybody freaking out and thinking I'm going Catholic. What are your thoughts? He wrote me back. And he thanked me. He said, that's so great. You know, I told him my background. He said, can I suggest you start with visuals? He said, find a nice table, like a wooden table, and a nice tablecloth, and just put it in the front with a chalice and a plate and a couple of candles and don't tell anybody anything. Just let it sit there for a few weeks while you preach and just do the service. And what happened was within a couple of weeks, people said, oh, are we going to have communion today? Because they saw it. It's like, maybe we should. And so we incorporated communion during our worship time every week as a result of that because I knew there had to be that. And it was actually actually telling that story to Glenn at lunch when he was thinking about starting Sunday nights that led to some of our conversation about the place of the Eucharist in in the worship service. Uh, That has always been, even you go back to the book of Acts, central to Christian worship is the breaking of bread and the wine. And it was the American version of the uh, Protestant Reformation several hundred years later that did a couple things. And one of the things they did was they took the communion table from being central and they put the pulpit central in the churches. Now, I don't think, of course, now if you go to big mega churches, the uh, drum set is central. So <laughs> I'm not suggesting that architecture impedes the presence of God, but I am suggesting that symbols and visuals aren't without meaning. They do tell what's important. And when there's a table there with with a cup and some baskets and a cross, it says on a regular basis, oh yeah, this is about Jesus and what he did for us, right? And so that's where I come to my personal, so I'm kind of a modified, I like the Lutherans. I don't like the fact that they don't play well with others. You know, that's probably the part that would keep me from pursuing Lutheran ordination in my life. That and the fact that I'm too old and they wouldn't want me. But um, <laughs> it would be the lack of ecumenicism. That, that one's just a hard one for me because I, I think it opposes John 17, personally. You know, especially Wells and Missouri Synod. I mean, um, other, other questions? Yeah. 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 Right. And they're afraid to criticize it, or they're afraid to criticize it. Yeah. Right. That's a good observation. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely, that's a great point. Mm hmm. Or and, and ask a, and ask hard questions. Yeah. 
at all times, always. And, and you know what's amazing? I, I, I've, heard, I've heard it attributed to Billy Graham, though I'm not sure he originally said it, the statement that the Bible doesn't need you to defend it. It's like a lion. You let it out of the cage, and it's quite able to defend itself. You know, and you're absolutely right. Through all of the controversy, the scriptures are still there. And God is not upset if people ask hard questions of it. That's very good. Yeah. Uh, and then, okay. Yeah. Because CRC and charismatic aren't usually in the same sentence. Yeah. CRC is Christian Reformed Church. It's one of the real classic Calvinist denominations. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's because of the CRC background. You know, that was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Sure. Yeah, exactly. The, 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 the Reformed churches, there's three forms of church government, and then there are variations on the theme in between those three, okay? The three classic forms are Episcopal, Presbyterian and Congregational. And don't confuse the names of denominations by the same name. Episcopal comes from the word episcopus, which means bishop. Um, Presbyterian uh, comes from presbyteros, which means elder. And, um, and then congregational simply doesn't come from anything in the scripture because you don't see it in the Bible. But congregational is where the congregation votes on everything like a democracy. So, and you've got, you've got variations. So you've got where, like in the Catholic Church, the bishop runs his diocese. He can take any priest out, put any priest in, and there's no, uh, and the only thing you can do is go above him to the archbishop. You know, I mean, there's no um, recourse. Now you've got, uh, say, in some of the Protestant denominations, like the Methodist Church or Lutheran Church, will have a bishop. So he's a pastor over pastors, but he's elected by uh, some, some other body or group and he's reelected or not, and you know what I'm saying? So it's kind of like a, and then you got Presbyterian where you've got a group of elders, you know, uh, that are elected or appointed. Then you've got the congregational, and you've got all those different ones, but the accountability, the point being, does somebody have the right to tell you no, and you have to listen to them? That, that, to me, that's the thing in authority is, is there somebody who can say no, <laughs> you, you know? Uh, but if I'm my own kingdom, no, there's nobody who says that, you know. And uh, um, in the vineyard churches, we actually cut and pasted, if you will, the assemblies of God's church discipline for pastors because it was so well done. Um, in the assemblies of God church, if a pastor has an extramarital affair or something like that, there is a system that takes over that's very kind and godly and caring and responsible um, and is for the purpose of everybody being restored, perhaps even the pastor, to a, possibly back to his ministry position. It's so well done that back when I was a vineyard pastor, literally we, our, our leadership, just kind of cut and pasted and put it in our bylaws, you know. Um, one of the things, though, is if it's a full-blown affair, I'm not talking about just some kind of weird relationship, but if it's a full-blown affair, you're out of the pulpit for two years, okay. 
I know of a few high-profile ministry guys years ago who were caught in this kind of thing that said God called them and they weren't going to step down, so they left the Assemblies of God and became independent. To me, that was rebelling against authority. You know, it's like, uh, it was a good, it's a good system, you know. It's, maybe it's not the best, but it's a good one, you know. It's got to be something. Mm-hmm. Right. That's right. And the priest, that's right. Which, <laughs> and he, uh, and, and even to this day, yeah. Even to this day, in a, in a Lutheran church and in a Catholic church, in the back, there's a basin that goes directly into the soil, not into the city sewer system where they pour the extra wine. You know? So, uh, yeah, it's kind of an interesting one. Evan. Pastor Evan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Luther was not following the Catholic one. He was following, we did not include the uh, Apocrypha. So that's why the Reformed churches never did have the Apocrypha. Um, a lot of that was probably Melanchthon's doing because Melanchthon was brilliant. By the time Melanchthon was like eight or nine, he was fluent in Latin, German, Hebrew, Greek. I mean, I, he was just, uh, he was like a savant genius, you know. Um, so the Lutheran, the Reformation basically kept the, the non-Catholic canon, which is the canon, by the way, by canon, I mean the, the, the collection of books that we recognize as the Bible. Uh, the Apocrypha are those other Old Testament books that, that you look at, Esdras, and you know, what are those? They're, they're, they're scripture-like writings, and the Catholic Bibles include them. One of the main reasons Protestants don't is because Jewish congregations don't. The Jewish Bible doesn't have them as sacred scripture. Now, having said that, and I've read much of the Apocrypha, most of it's pretty um, uh, neutral. Most of it's just history, you know, and there's not a lot. It's not like it's um, got a whole bunch of heresy in it, you know what I mean? Most of it's just, but the early, so the Protestants have basically said the holders of scripture, the Jews, didn't view these as part of the collection of the canon of inspired scripture, so we're going we're gonna to take their lead on that one from the Old Testament. That's why we don't include those, you know. But there's nothing wrong with them, and you're welcome to read them because they're, uh, like the Maccabees are great because they fill in some history between that intertestamental period, you know. Then there's a weird one like the dragon one, and there's some strange, you know, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> there's one passage in one of the apocryphal books that, some Catholics point to as, the pur- as purgatory, but when you read it, you're kind of hard-pressed to even read that into it. It's kind of like, if that's their whole defense of purgatory, it's pretty thin, you know. Sam? Sorry? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm aware of it. I've got to be honest, I haven't really studied it much other than heard some of the, yeah, there's some weird things in it. But some of Mike Maccabees and some of the others are, just kind of history. They're historical narrative, not unlike a lot of the book of Judges would be. You know, they're, they're not bad. Yeah, there's some, but if the Jews didn't accept it before Christ, that's kind of a good indication why we wouldn't, 
you know. Maybe one more question. Somebody else? Was this helpful? Um, cook the goose? Yeah, you got you to admit that. I couldn't not share that one. I mean, my gosh. So next week, uh, we'll be the, the Swiss and English guys. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, the easiest is, um, let me just, here. Let me do this. Let me uh, add a new slide. Um, and uh, emit.global is the name of the organization I'm, we're working with with Africa. So um, that's a good email for me. My Yahoo one is still valid, but I get so many gazillions of emails a day, I'm really kind of purging that one. So that's the best one um, for me. So next week, we're primarily going to do the, uh, the Swiss and the English guys, you know. So um, I'll say this. Martin was colorful. You know, uh, and now growing up Lutheran, and the Lutherans, we always called him Dr. Martin Luther or Dr. Luther. Always, always. But uh, he was colorful. The Swiss guys were a little tightly wound, okay? <laughs> Which is why if you've ever been to some reform, not all, but some CRC churches and some Presbyterian churches, you will find they're a tad tightly wound, you know? Okay, they're, they're just, it's their legacy, okay? They can't help it. Um, and the English would be Cramner and the Church of England, the Anglican Communion. And uh, uh, it's kind of some fun stuff. So uh, anything else? Any other questions? Lord, thank you for this time. Bless us in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, go out and fellowship. Well, thank you guys. <laughs>